uh, open our eyes and our heart to you. Um, Lord, we thank you for Ben, and we pray that his uh, message and your word is brought to us in a way this morning that we can uh, reflect on it and uh, live more for you and show others around us that we, we live for you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Tanner. <coughs> First Corinthians chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. First Corinthians 10. We're going to start in verse 22, and by God's grace, hopefully we will get all the way through 11 verse 1. We have uh, Veterans Day is coming up next week, and we celebrate Veterans Day to remind us the sacrifice that, that our veterans have made to protect us, to give us these freedoms that we can worship uh, together, and that plays into this text that we're going to talk about pretty clearly, pretty uh, uh, applicably, because it's a lot about freedom. But I think the freedom that you and I enjoy is a different kind of freedom than what the Bible talks about. And the way I want to kind of show this to you is by quoting movies. Just at the introduction. There's some movies that when movies talk about freedom, they talk about freedom in a certain way. So uh, Al Pacino says, freedom, baby, is never having to say you're sorry. Or in Fight Club, which is the movie you're not allowed to talk about. I found freedom. Losing all hope was freedom. Or if you like Phantom of the Opera, which I went to, and I, it, it was better than I thought. All I want is freedom, a world with no more night. Or if you're more in the Willy Wonka vein, and we're talking Gene Wilder, not none of the new nonsense, the old Willy Wonka. There is no life to compare with pure imagination. Living there, you'll be free if you truly wish to be, or if we're going to talk about freedom and we're going to talk about movies, there's one movie we have to reference, and it's when William Wallace says, I am William Wallace, and I see a whole army of countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to see, <laughs> I'm trying to not do the accent, you've come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? And in the deal I copy and paste it online, this is where the blonde soldier says, fight against that? No, we will run and we will live. And then William Wallace says, I <laughs> had to do one. <laughs> fight and you may die, run and you'll live at least a while. And dying in your beds, many years from now, you will be willing to trade the, all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come here and tell our enemies that they will take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. <laughs> Braveheart. Freedom, right? As Americans, this is something that we cling to. This is something that we hold to. It's something that we absolutely value and that we fight for. And the Bible talks about freedom, but if we're going to be biblical, we have to understand what the biblical idea of freedom is and what the biblical idea of freedom is not, especially for us as believers. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter, 22, chapter 10, verse 22, sorry, verse 23, all the way through 11.1. 1. We'll pray and then we'll walk, work through this thing like we always do. Everything is permissible, 
but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is seeking his own good, but the good of the other person. Every, uh, eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience. Since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, if any of the unbelievers invite you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this food is from a sacrifice, do not eat it. Out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. Why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you that we can gather together, that we can sing songs, that we have this freedom that has been given to us. Help us to not neglect it. Help us to cherish it. Help us to enjoy it. Help us to make the most of it, because it's a gift that you have given to us that has not been given to many behind us. God, I pray as we come to this passage of Scripture that you would speak to us clearly. That you would help us to understand what we are freed from and what we are freed to do. Help us to make much of you, Jesus, this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. So here is an idea that Paul has already talked about at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, 12, Paul says this, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Most likely what Paul is doing is this phrase, everything is permissible, was kind of the slogan for Corinth, right? Uh, You have don't mess with Texas. If we say don't mess with Texas, we understand what that means, right? You come at Texas, we're going to punch you in the face. No, it's a littering campaign. That's what it really was. It's this idea, this slogan that was around Corinth. And so what Paul is doing is he's taking this slogan and he's applying it to the Corinthian believers to this church. But he adds a few things, doesn't he? Everything is permissible. And and Paul would say, yes, that is true. To the Christian, there is freedom that is found in Jesus Christ, right? The the gospel that saves us is the gospel that our our sinful nature, nature, which leads to sinful actions, is taken care of completely and fully by the God of the universe who puts on flesh, who dwells amongst us, who lives a perfect life. There's not multiple people who live multiple perfect lives. There's one person who's lived one perfect life. Only Jesus did, and he didn't deserve the punishment for sin. He's the only one who's never deserved to be punished for sin because he did not sin. Yet instead, he goes to the cross 
He doesn't deserve the punishment for sin. He doesn't deserve the punishment of the wrath of God being poured upon him. But instead, both physically and spiritually, he goes to the cross so that he can be a ransom for many, that he can save believers. So was Jesus free? Absolutely. He is God. He is the creator of all things. He could have made things different, but he didn't. Because what matters most to God is what glorifies God the most. So Jesus is God in the flesh, selflessly giving up his life, selflessly giving himself so that he would bear our sin and then credit us with his righteousness is what brings the most glory to God. It's not just that Jesus died a painful death. He did. It's that he drank the cup of wrath that you and I deserve. Our sin is counted against Christ, and Christ's righteousness is counted for us. So this means that when we repent of our sin, when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we trust, when we have faith in Jesus, we are saved. We are saved from hell, and we are saved from being enslaved to our sin. We are free in Christ. Everything is permissible. But Paul adds caveats for us. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Not everything is helpful. Not everything is profitable. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. Not everything edifies. There is a freedom in Christ, but this freedom is not to do whatever you and I want to do. Jesus isn't freeing us so that we can go be selfish and live out our selfish desires. Selfishness is a sin, a sin that Jesus died for. He isn't saving us so we can enjoy carnal living with no repercussions. That's not what Jesus saves us from. We're not antinomians. We're not somebody who holds to the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ that he saved us. And so because we have this kind of get out of hell free card that we got at VBS, we can go live our life however we want to because we can trust. That's not what the Bible says. Yes, there's grace. Yes, there's mercy. Yes, there's freedom. But belief in Jesus, faith in Jesus means that you get a new heart and a new life. And a new heart and a new life live different than the old self did. It's a freedom. A freedom to kill the sin that dwells within us. A freedom to not be controlled by our sinful flesh, but to live for the God of the universe. A freedom to seek out the benefit of others at the expense of ourselves. A freedom to build others up, even if it means we level ourselves down. Is that what we use our freedom for? To seek the good of others is what Paul says. This is not a novelty verse in the Bible. It's all throughout the scriptures. Romans 15.2 says this. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Philippians 2.4 says this. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Matthew 22 verses 34 through 40 says this. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked him a question to test him. 
teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the prophets, all the law depend on these two commands. I point that passage out because it's one that we get quoted a lot of times, but we often miss what Jesus is doing. He's taking the entire law and he's putting it into two commands. Love the Lord your God with everything that you absolutely have, and then love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love your neighbor as yourself unless you first love the Lord your God. That's what the law teaches. The first, the Ten Commandments, the first four of the Ten Commandments are all about our relationship with God. The last six are about our relationship with one another. You can't love your neighbor as yourself unless you first love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's something that flows from you. You can't manufacture this kind of love. You can't manufacture this kind of care. You can't manufacture this type of change within your heart. The reality of the scriptures or what we see is the more that you love God, the more you sacrifice your own selfish wants and selfish desires for the sake of other people. It's a fruit. You can't fake fruit. It's a fruit of genuine love and genuine care. It's a fruit that as you progress in your Christianity, as you grow in your faith, as you mature in Jesus Christ, you care less and less about your wants and your desires and more and more about your brothers and sisters in Jesus. You care more and more about unbelievers that God has put in your path and put in your life so that you might be a gospel light to them to share the gospel with them. It's a freedom a freedom to build others up. Look at verse 25. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising question for the sake of conscience. Since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, if any unbeliever invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this food is from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is it my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something which I give thanks? So, so Paul shifts and he moves into this idea about a conscience. He already talked about this in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, when Paul first talks about all of the, the uh, food being offered to idols, he brings up this idea of conscience. And now Paul has lifted this long section from 1 Corinthians 8 all the way to where we're at now, which is largely talking about food offered to idols. He brings conscience back up. So what is it? It's a cricket that you put in your pocket. And if you tell a lie, your nose grows. That's how Disney portrays a conscience, is uh, Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I thought that would be a little bit better. I thought we'd pick up on it, but maybe not. The conscience is what helps you determine right from wrong. So in Disney, in the story of Pinocchio, when he tells a lie, his, his nose grows, but God, uh, not God, the fairy, gives Pinocchio a cricket, Jiminy Cricket, and that's Jiminy Cricket's job, is he's to be Pinocchio's conscience. And throughout the movie, if you want to watch it, largely what you'll see is where Pinocchio obeys his conscience, obeys Jiminy Cricket, his life goes well. And when he doesn't, his life ends up not good. (laughs) 
In fact, Jiminy's famous line from Pinocchio is, let your conscience be your guide. Now, Disney or any person or group that doesn't hold to Scripture is going to press into that line, let your conscience be your guide. And what they're going to do is they're going to stretch it to mean something that it doesn't mean biblically. And we see this playing out now after it's been 40, 50 years since Pinocchio came out. What they stretch it to mean is that your conscience is the ultimate truth of who you are. Who you are on the inside is who you should be on the outside. So whatever you feel like doing on the inside, if you'll live that feeling out, if you'll follow, if you'll chase after those dreams, if you'll chase after your wants, your desires, your heart on the outside, and you'll lead true to that, then your life will be happy and it'll be good. And if you don't do that, then you're going to fall by the wayside. That's what Disney would teach us. That's what other people would teach us. But that's not what the Bible teaches The Bible teaches you and I that our hearts are idol factories, that our hearts long for things, that we worship things that aren't meant to be worshipped. What the Bible tells us is don't look inside for a Savior, but you look external to yourself for a Savior. Don't look inside for a conscience that's going to be a guide. You look externally to a Savior who lived the life that you and I should have lived and died the death that we deserve. That's going to be our conscience. That's going to be our guide. And he has given us his word revealed to us in the scriptures, so we follow after the scriptures. That's what guides our conscience. But even then, there's times whether we're newer believers or we have different backgrounds, when we come to Jesus Christ, there are things that your conscience genuinely as a Christian may want you to abstain from or to partake in that the Bible doesn't necessarily say you should or should not do. So what this means for, for, for like new believers or, or people who, who are prone to temptations, you have a, a weaker conscience. Other believers are freed to care for your conscience. See, Paul, when he speaks this, he, he quotes uh, Psalm 24, 1. The earth and everything in it and its inhabitants in the world belong to the Lord. He talks about this idea with, with Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to re- be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing to be re- is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So the issue of conscience that's taking place in Corinth is this issue of food that's been offered to idols. Sorry, I'm getting choked up. Food that's been offered to idols. That's what Paul is saying, is he's saying there's not really any such thing as another God. There's only one God. There's one true God. Three persons, one God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal in in, in divinity, unique in roles, but one God. One God in three persons. It's not like the food being offered to idols is, is offered to a different God. It's a false God. It's not real. It's not true. And so what Paul is saying, coming to this issue of conscience, is when you go to the meat market, what happened is you would sacrifice or people would sacrifice at the temple. Some of the food would be burned up. Some of the food would be eaten at a feast at the temple, and then the rest of the food would be sold in the marketplace. And so they would go to the market, they would buy meat, they would come home. And what Paul is saying is you don't have to worry, you don't have to trace back the origin of your food to make sure it's not been offered in the temple. Everything belongs to God. It's his. You don't have to to save up and find the kosher cow and buy it all at once and stick it in the freezer and make sure that that it's, it's kosher and you're good to go and hoard. They didn't have refrigerators back then, at least that I know of. 
And so what Paul is saying is this is not an issue you have to bother your conscience with. If you don't know where the meats come from, you don't have to go trace it back. You're not going to accidentally eat yourself into idolatry. right? You're not going to take a bite of your hamburger and then all of a sudden wake up the next day and worship a different God. That's not how that works. It all belongs to God. However, he says, if you see someone or they tell you, they invite you over and they tell you this food has been offered as a sacrifice, you do not eat it. Why? Why does it seem like Paul is changing his tone here? What does it matter if you can eat it without them knowing and you not knowing as opposed to if you do know and they know? What, what changes there? Why is it an issue? Listen to what Paul says at the end of verse 28. It explains the force. Out of consideration of the one who told you for the sake of their conscience, that's why you don't eat it. So this person has let you know that this food has been sacrificed to an idol probably because they know you are a Christian. And that it would be like tricking you into eating idol meat. And they want to respect you and care for you enough to tell you, hey, this meat we're about to eat in has been sacrificed to an idol. I know you're into that weird Christian thing. I didn't want to cause any issues. For their sake. Did you catch what Paul said? Not for your own conscience. He makes it very clear whose conscience he's talking about. The conscience of the other person. You abstain from eating the meat. You don't want to sway their understanding of right and wrong. You seek the good of the other person. So, so if it's a believer who tells you this, and like this food's been offered to uh, an idol, what should we do? You say, we're going to abstain from it for the sake of that other believer. If it's an unbeliever who's like, hey, this food has been offered to an idol, you abstain from it so they know you don't worship the same false god that they worship. But then Paul says, why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? I partake with thanksgiving, presumably to the true Lord God, why, why am I being criticized? It's like Paul says one thing and then immediately jumps to the exact opposite of it. Right? Don't eat of this thing if you know what it is, but why am I being judged if I'm going to eat this with thanksgiving? Because the welfare of others should be a concern for us. We should care about one another. We should love one another. We should seek the good of one another. What we have been freed to do here is to care about the conscience of other people, but our consciences are not the Bible. We're going to be wrong in some areas with our consciences. Ultimately, our ultimate authority is the Scripture. So we can partake with thanksgiving. We can understand that their standard, that somebody else's conscience, is not the rule for everything that we do. The Bible is ultimately the rule. So if we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, we can hold two things to be true when we deal with brothers and sisters. That we will change the smallest area of our life to the biggest area of our life if we can help brothers and sisters grow in their consciousness because God has given us the freedom to do so. While we can avoid being legalistic about the tiny little things that take place within our lives that are not issues of sound doctrine, but just secondary or tertiary things. The best way, I think, for us to understand kind of what Paul is talking about is not food offered to idols, right? We don't go to Walmart and look for the package that says, not idols, not idols, not idols. They don't have it there. I don't think Tyson cares where your food was at. They just want to sell it to you cheap. Probably for us in IRA in 2023, our understanding of alcohol is probably the best place for us to understand and flesh out where the rubber meets the road when it comes to Christian freedom. 
So you can look in the scriptures, and what you will not find is a command to completely abstain from the drinking of alcohol. You won't find it. What you will find are lots of warnings about being controlled by alcohol. What you will find are lots of warnings about not being drunk under the influence of alcohol. So this now becomes an issue of conscience for believers. So for some believers, this is not an issue. You drink a glass of wine or have a beer every now and then. It's a non-issue. It's something the Lord has given you. You're going to enjoy it. And for other believers, this is an issue. For whatever reason, your conscience does not allow you to partake in this. Maybe it's alcoholism has run rampant in your family, and you don't want to test that. That, That's me. I, I don't. Or maybe you simply take the wisdom of Scripture and say, I'm not going to to, uh, give in to those things. Even though it's allowed, even though there's freedom there, I'm going to abstain from drinking alcohol because it's the wise thing for me to do. We can love one another by understanding this issue. We can love one another by saying, okay, we're not going to drink at church events, right? No Catholics here. We're not drinking at church events. We're not going to drink in front of other people that we know struggle with alcohol. Is it a sin to drink? No. Is it a sin to be controlled by alcohol and get drunk? Yes. Is it a sin to cause somebody else to struggle, to stumble, if you know they are struggling with this? Yes. The call is to build one another up. You've been freed from this to help care for one another's conscience. If you're under 21 and you drink alcohol, is it a sin to God? Yes. Romans chapter 11. Romans 15, sorry. We follow the rules of the land, but when we come to this, we can have this understanding of there is freedom, but we can still care for one another in the midst of this Christian freedom. So, so we're, we're freed to build one another up, we're freed to care for one another's consciousness, and then we're freed to glorify God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Isn't that funny where that verse is found? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We've heard that one before. Do you realize the context is an idol? Meat being sacrificed and understanding this Christian freedom that we have been given in God. The ultimate plan of God, God's ultimate purpose in life is to glorify himself. That's God's grand plan. It's not to make much of you. It's not to make much of me. It's to make much of God himself. That's his plan for all of creation. There's catechisms from from the past. In the Westminster Catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is our purpose. When we read our purpose statement that we have for our church, the very beginning of it is, we exist to glorify God. That's it. Everything else that we say is funneling into how we are going to glorify God because God has told us in his word, he's spoken to us in his word, these are the things you do to glorify me. And God has given you and I together as this local church in Ira, Texas with our understanding of how we can glorify God here with the best of our abilities. This is God's plan. And it goes down to the littlest things that we do. 
when you wake up and snack, we glorify God. When you get a drink, you glorify God. Everything we do is for the glory of God. Paul says to give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God. This is his way of including everyone. To the unbelieving Jews, to the unbelieving Greeks, whatever we do, we try to give no offense to them because the gospel in and of itself is offensive. The gospel is you're not enough, I'm not enough, only Jesus is enough. The gospel is not look inside and get your stuff together, act better, work harder, do more, be better, don't curse, curse less, whatever. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you are not enough. You cannot earn your way to God. You never will earn your way to God. You have no hope outside of Jesus Christ. That's offensive. We don't have to add anything to be offensive about. We try to be within ourselves no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Let's talk about Rockies concrete. No, I'm just kidding. Fellow brothers and sisters. That we don't have to try to just be mean. We don't have to try to just cram things down people's throats. We don't have to get hardback Bibles and beat people on the head with them, hoping that they'll come to Christ. We're not the Holy Spirit. Our goal is to be faithful. And to be faithful means we glorify God in every single thing that we do. Paul says, just as I try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. All of this is for the glory of God. That God in his plan, in God's will, in God's understanding of how he created everything, how he orchestrated everything to be, God is most glorified by saving random people like you and me. Not the people who have it all together all the time. Not the perfect ones. Us. Other Christians that God has saved. That's what brings God glory. Do you know that only believers can glorify God? And we glorify God because we know that He is faithful. Glory is something that is worthy of praise or exaltation or brilliance or beauty of renown. And the glory of God has two aspects that we need to understand. There's the inherent glory of God. No one can give this glory to God. It is already completely his. It belongs to him just by him being the virtue of who he is, God. When we glorify God, we don't add anything to God, really. He's got it all anyway. But the second kind of glory is the ascribed glory that we give him. We cannot add to God's glory. This is us simply recognizing the glory that God already has. Do you know the biblical ways, the, 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 the text, how it tells us to glorify God? The text tells us the ways that we glorify God are by confessing our sin. By trusting in Jesus by bearing the fruit that God has called us to bear, by thanking God, by suffering for Christ, by being content, by praying, by spreading the word of God. Or as Paul says it, anything and everything that a Christian does should be seeking to glorify God. 
So when we look at this text, what we can see is we glorify God when we kill our selfishness. We have been freed to build up brothers and sisters in Christ and not have to care about ourselves but care about others. We have been freed to care for the consciences of brothers and sisters in Christ who are probably different than ours, but we can live in such a way to help disciple them, help grow them, and be discipled and grow with them. And we have been freed to glorify God. We don't have to sit and try to earn our own glory. We don't have to sit and try to feel valuable or feel like something, like we matter, like we mean something. Our calling in this world is not to be something great, but to glorify God in all that we do. Live out the gospel, die, be forgotten. That's the call of many Christians. And praise God, many Christians before us have done that. And I pray that that's what we would do as well. That it's not about us. It's about Christ. This is the point. And I like that Paul ends this text by saying, imitate me as I imitate others. Do you remember how Paul started Corinthians off? Some of you like Apollos, and some of you like Peter, and some of you like me, and some of you don't like me. But now Paul is saying, imitate me. And he doesn't say, imitate me because I am awesome and you are a bunch of heathens could have he could have said that he says imitate me as much as i imitate christ so what does this mean it means that you and i if we're believers in jesus christ have been called to build up one another how do we do that well first in your own life we have to value the word of god We have to read it. We have to memorize on it. We have to build our lives upon the word and live the word out. How do we build up each other? Well, through preaching and through teaching. That's a way that God has given us, an ordinary means of grace that grows us in Christ. And so the call is to make every effort to be here. And when you cannot, and I understand it happens, when you cannot be here with us, don't neglect gathering with other churches. One of our favorite things we do as a church is when we're on vacation, we'll go try out other churches. And there's some stories that we found. But there's something good for the soul of physically gathering together. God made us a people, not a person. We gather with other believers in Jesus Christ. There's no substitute for this. And, and I preach book by book, verse by verse. It's largely, you know what text is going to come up. And so if you miss one, we record them. We put them online. If you're having trouble sleeping at night, plug one of those puppies in. It'll be out in a few minutes. One of the hurdles that our church is currently facing is the scarcity of teachers. We're in need of people to teach these gospel truths to kids, to adults. One of the promises that Jesus makes, and we'll get to it as we walk through 1 Corinthians, is that God has given each church what that church needs. I tell people all the time, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to understand the scripture well, go teach a kid's class. Largely, Right, just, just think about this, right? If you sit into a class, that's important, and you should do that, and you should sit and be in a class, be under someone's teaching. But the one who prepares the most for the lesson is not the student. It's the teacher. 
you want to grow in Christ, a way to do that is to go teach one of the kids' class. We will give you a curriculum. I will train you. I promise you I'm not going to let you just go teach whatever you want. Maybe for some of you men, God is calling you to preach, but you're scared or you're timid. Both teaching and preaching are callings that God gives to people, but they must be trained up. So if you're a man and you want to preach and you feel like the Lord is putting this on you, come and talk to me. Let's train you. Let's get you to where you need to be. Think of how much more we could glorify God in our church if we had multiple godly men with voices that could come proclaim, proclaim the same gospel to us from the same text with different voices that God has given Think how much more glorified our church would be if we had teachers chomping at the bit to teach a class, but we just didn't have enough classes. I'm not going to throw you to the wolves if that's something you're nervous about, but I'll train you. I'll teach you. Come talk to me. Shoot me a text. Send me an email. Call me. Let's, Let's talk. How do we build one another up? Through love. Love is not just affirming what somebody wants to do. That's not love. Love is caring deeply, wanting what's best for somebody else. So if you're a member of our church, you have a member book that we give out at the member meeting. So pray through that book. Encourage one another. It has phone numbers. It has addresses, right? Letters. Send uh, text messages. It has birthdays. Encourage one another. Here's one of the things I have loved the most about the way our church is structured now. When somebody joins the church, typically you end up at our house and we have a meal together. And those meetings we've had meals together have been some of the most fruitful times that we've had because almost half of them have ended in us crying together hearing our stories hearing what the lord's brought us from and he's taken us to and one of the things you can do to help encourage one another is have people over and share your testimonies with one another i know it'll be awkward at first but i promise you you will be edified if you will hear how the lord has grown you and how the lord has grown somebody else some of you have known each other for years and you don't know how the other one was saved And we have the same God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Get to know each other. You don't have to do it over a meal. That's just the Baptist way. How do we build one another up? Obedient servants. uh, Obedient service. We'll get into this in the coming weeks, but you have been given gifts by God. And the best way to find out what your gifts are is not to fill out a survey and then figure out what spiritual gifts God has given you. The best way to find out what your gifts are are just to plug in somewhere and try to serve. And if you absolutely hate it, then we'll move you to a different spot until we find the place that you like. And trust that the Lord is going to grow you and stretch you. I have to teach one of the kids' Sunday school classes right now, and I did not want to. I'm not gifted in that area. It has been so good for me to wrestle and to hear their questions and to hear their hearts and to do those things. And it's something I never would have signed up for. There is a truth that I keep repeating in 1 Corinthians and we will keep repeating it. The church needs you and you need the church. This is the way God has made us. How do we build one another up? God has freed us to build one another up, to set aside our selfishness, to to repent of selfishness and to be selfless and to care for other people, to care for the consciences of one another, to seek to not offend one another needlessly. The gospel is offensive. We don't have to add to the offense of the gospel. God has freed us to glorify him, not ourselves. 
I have three trophies in my office I keep to remind me that I'm not that important. One of them says I'm the world's okayest pastor. One of them says I'm the most needy person. And one of them is third place in the Carson County frog hop, which you would think would be me frog hopping. No, we got a frog, and you tied a tag to its leg. And my frog was so bad it got third place, yet they're so poor, like needing to give kids encouragement, they gave me a trophy for it. You don't, like, have to do everything. You don't have to be the mightiest and the best at every single little thing. God has freed you to glorify him, not yourself. Your worth, your value, your dignity are not in what you do, but who you belong to. If you belong to Christ, you are free to glorify God. You're free to disciple one another to speak truth to one another, to be discipled by other people in the church. You're free to share the gospel with unbelievers, to call them to repent and to be saved. I can't tell you the need for that in Ira is far more than we realize. There are lost people all around us that if they do not repent and turn to Jesus, will not be saved and will not be with Christ forever and eternity. And God has placed you and I here so that we can cast aside our selfishness, cast aside our sinful desires to not go share the gospel and go share the gospel with them. We can glorify God because we've covenantally committed to one another. I did a test this morning. We'll see if you got it. I read the same covenant passage I read last week. Did anybody recognize it? I did it for a reason. We talked about alcohol, and I wanted to have that in there in the alcohol section, but I also wanted to emphasize we commit to one another. When you join the church, you're covenanting with your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That we're going to live out this gospel that we claim to believe, not just with random people that we find in the street. We're going to live it out with each other. That's who we're committing to. We're going to have brotherly love for one another. We're going to care for one another. We're going to be happy for one another. We're going to weep with one another. We're going to love one another, which means we have to know one another. So that we can be free to build one another up, we can be free to care for the consciences of one another, and we can be free to glorify God in every single thing that we do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, I thank you that we do have a freedom that is found in you, Jesus. 